Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, this is Dan Miller. Welcome into this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. If you're a new listener, we welcome you in. Each week I hear from people around the world who are uh, just new listeners, and we welcome your listening and participation. You can shoot questions in. We'll work those into the show here. But thanks for being with us. I value each of you being part of the 48 Days family, the growing community of people who really are finding or creating work that they love. Yes, it is possible. What are the questions today? Ask that very thing. Lady's husband says, you know, how many people really are living the life that they want doing work that they love? Does Dan Miller have a percentage? Well, we'll deal with that as one of the questions today. This is a time each week where we take 48 minutes just to deal with these real questions that you all submit to me questions that I couldn't dream up for the most part. Got some really intriguing ones today that deal with some business issues having to do with copyright law, licensing issues. Here's a sampling of what we're going to cover. Gentleman says, I can't seem to make enough money to support my family on eBay. Well, I'm going to address that. Somebody says, if I charge a monthly membership fee for my educational website, would that violate the fair use laws regarding news articles, pictures, and so on? How do you stay motivated if you don't have a support system? Oh, there's a great question yeah, that deserves an answer. Person continues, I am surrounded by non-starters whose contribution is a constant chorus of negativity. Hmm. Somebody has a phrase that they want to put on t-shirts. How do you go about doing that? We'll address, what do you do if you have a really cool phrase? You know, you could have, you're fired, or just do it. If you come up with a phrase like that, how do you proceed if you want to produce that on hats, mugs, t-shirts, and so on? What steps can I take to ensure my business continues operating if I'm mobilized for active military service? Well, those are some of the things we're going to be dealing with. Let me kind of go right into those because I've got a lot of content today that I want to cover. You know, I want, to, I want to share just a real quick story. I talked with a guy last night, a, a dad, actually a client of mine from about 10 years ago. Great guy, lives down in Florida, and he was telling me about his son. And I think it's a story worth retelling. His son was a challenging child. Uh, we all seem to have one of those along the way. I had a very challenging child who now lives in Africa, doing some amazing work around the world, connected with, he, he's got people on his speed dial that I have only dreamed of talking to. But anyway, Jared is extremely well connected, but came out of a, a very troubling childhood. And sometimes we just have to be patient as parents, knowing that time is a wonderful healer and time sometimes is a wonderful clarifier at helping our kids figure things out. Well, Alan has a son who went through kind of that same process. They homeschooled him as we did Jared, but they homeschooled his son to try to get him through with some semblance of a degree at least. But he went on and was kind of figuring things out. He's now a junior in college, 20 years old, a junior in college, full-time student on the dean's list, but he's also selling health insurance part-time. Just find a, found, kind of found his stride in terms of setting up appointments and being bold about 
working with people. Last year as a junior in college, full-time student made $115,000 selling insurance as his part-time job. Now, you know, the stark contrast I'm hearing in the perspective of people about the times that we're living in. I mean, I have people who are convinced the economy is bad, and the wrong people are in the White House, we're in a recession, depression, whatever, nobody's hiring, everything is horrible. And other people who are just absolutely knocking it out of the park right now because as things are changing, there's a lot of new opportunities that didn't exist a couple of years ago. Kind of reminds me, remember the old tale of two cities, Charles Dickens? Let me read just a quick quote from that book, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in a superlative degree of comparison only. So what do we have? You know, is it this the best of times or the worst of times? Well, I'm hearing from people who are on each end of that continuum, and I think we can kind of choose where we want to be. I think we can choose whether we see this as the best of times or the worst of times. Well, Patricia took offense at my comment recently about ignoring a no solicitation sign on a business where I walked in anyway and got chewed out royally by the manager of that business then went outside, called him on my cell phone, and proceeded to walk back in and sell him a very uh, pretty expensive advertising package. Anyway, she took offense of that, says, I disagree about the no solicitor signs. Anyone could pose as a solicitor. For women, it's a safety issue. It's a matter of respect. You are breaking the law in this town. We're asked to call 911. I believe in respectful tenacity. Ignoring the sign is as bad as a company who ignores the federal do not call list. Well, again, I, I uh, respect your take on that. And actually, you know, Patricia talked about a no solicitation sign on a house. Now that, that I view a whole lot differently. I mean, frankly, I think that somebody who tries to make their living knocking on doors unannounced residential doors unannounced today is foolish. I think that's a pretty tough way to go and certainly not one that I advise. And I would advise my wife not to answer the door or to call the police. Yeah, if somebody just showed up now, now we don't do that. Again, we're, we're country folk and we've got a sign down the, the lane doesn't say, you know, beware, nasty dog ahead, no solicitor. It says, welcome to the home of Dana Joy and Mellar. So we're very welcoming out here and we don't find that being abused at all. But I do would respect not knocking on a door unannounced. I don't think it's a wise thing to do. However, I still would go back. I think that a salesperson who respects every no solicitation sign that he sees is going to end up starving to death. I don't think that you need to just... I don't think it's breaking the law. I mean, you put that up. It's asking people 
not to sell. And frankly, I think it's kind of funny when stores have no solicitation signs in their front windows. They want you to come in. They want to sell to you. They want to aggressively sell to you, but they don't want to be sold to. I think it's kind of a double standard there. But but really, uh, now I could push this point farther than we need to here, and I'm not just trying to defend my position, but I, I tend to be a rule breaker. I mean, there's, there's really no question about that. I mean, my kids know that. I mean, I have often ignored signs or suggestions along the roadside uh, because um, I, I don't think that it's always in your best interest to do that. I mean, if you see a sign that says don't walk on the grass, but your three-year-old just wandered out there and is about to be bitten by a dog, are you going to obey the sign and just stay on the sidewalk? Well, of course not. I mean, under the right conditions, you're, you're going to break that rule or that suggestion, whatever it was. What about these sweet little girls that come around selling Girl Scout cookies? Should they stay away from any house that has a no solicitation sign posted? Ah, I think not. I think they ought to go to every door that there is and expect that they're going to get better results by doing that. Anyway, I appreciate your, your input on that. Again, if it probably has somewhat to do with personality, but I think there are times when you uh, can bend the rules and uh, be okay in doing that. Alex says, I would like to become a painting contractor. How do you begin to bid on jobs? Where do I look? How much do I charge? Well, if you want to be a painting contractor, you need to estimate the hours that you're going to spend and the product cost. And then I would suggest that you bid based on knowing those things, but that you bid not by the hour, not by the time it's going to spend you, but that you bid on the job. Now, obviously with that, if you underestimate and you have to do a lot of scraping and sanding and prepping and caulking to get ready to paint, you may underestimate the amount of hours that it will take you and you just bite the bullet on that. If you bid the job, then you stick with what your estimate was. But I still think that ultimately you're much better off bidding a job than by being paid by the hour. I mean, if you are paid by the hour as a painter, you've just capped out what you're ever going to do because there's only so many days in the week, so many hours in each day. So you reach a ceiling really quickly. Whereas if you bid a job and you do it effectively and you work quickly and don't take hour lunches, you can find that, wow, you can make, you know, 800 bucks a day by bidding a job properly. So this is not an exact science, but you ought to know how much time it's going to take you. You may also just bid the labor. So you can say it's $800, but you can pay directly for the paint and any supplies that I need. If it's sandpaper and caulk and trim, whatever, you know, you, you pay for that directly. Now, I've actually done that. Times when I've been in graduate programs, I've done a lot of painting, and I've done it all the ways that I just described. Uh, for the most part, in those days, I would just bid the labor as one project, and then I would pass on the receipts for the materials. So if somebody chose to use Porter paint, which is twice as much as bare that you could get at Home Depot, you know, they can do that, but that's not a pass-through cost to me. That's something they pay for directly. Yeah, sounds good. You can get started on that. So that's something you can start today and start bidding jobs and getting jobs you can do tomorrow. Okay, here. Now, this is the question that says, Dan, I've been laid off twice in the past two years for long periods of time. So I started an eBay business, which is doing well. 
But I can't seem to make enough money to support my family and business. I'm only able to buy enough products to make a small profit and don't have the money to buy more. Now, this is the cool thing about eBay. I mean, if you have a little shop in your hometown, you're limited to people who are in about a five-mile radius. doesn't matter what it is, books, clothing, food, whatever, about a five-mile radius. That's going to be it. So you are limited by the number of people who live in that area. On eBay, we pull those restrictors off. You have access to theoretically everybody in the world. So the numbers are exponential. So you ought to have a business that is scalable. Now, here's an example. I I worked with a, a couple. This has been several years ago. But in trying to find opportunities for them, She described that she and her sister would drive into Cincinnati, Ohio every Monday and they would go to an outlet where they could get Banana Republic and other brand name merchandise, brand new, but just discontinued overruns and so on. They would purchase that. They would get like $100 worth. They would put it on eBay and they would sell it for $300. It was extremely predictable. That formula, no matter what they did, they'd triple their money. Every time they put it up there because of the way they were able to purchase it, like 10 cents on a dollar for what its retail cost was. And I said, okay, rather than you going out, husband, going out and trying to figure out something else you could do, why don't you just join your wife and just ramp up what she's already doing? That's exactly what they did. So instead of purchasing $100 in product, they would purchase $1,000 in product. That would turn just as her $100 turned into $300, the $1,000 in product purchase would turn into $3,000. That's what they did. They ramped it up even more than that. There seemed to be no ceiling to what they could do. So if you have a legitimate eBay business, you ought to be able to scale it. You ought to be able to ramp it up and do more based on the percentage return that you're getting now. Now, if you're selling used baseball cards, or something like that, your supply may be limited, granted. So if you're in something like that, it may be more difficult to find more of a supply. But once you establish what your margins are on eBay, you ought to be able to scale that, meaning you ought to be able to ramp that up so you can move it up to higher incomes. And I've seen people go from, you know, making $200 a month to making $20,000 a month simply by using that principle. Rob from Massachusetts says, Dan, I'm interested in starting an educational website, but would like to know if I can charge a monthly membership fee and if that would violate fair use of news articles, pictures, and so on. I know as a teacher you can use them, but what about for-profit teaching? I'd use them in podcasts, ebooks for classes, and so on. Thanks. Now, this, this is one of those gray areas on the Internet right now. It's different. Putting things on an internet website is different than having them printed in a book. Material printed in books have an immediate copyright implied, and you can't just lift something from a book and put it in another book. That's clear violation of copyright. It's not as clear when you are doing things on the internet. Now, this is not, I'm not trying to make a case for breaking rules again, but I'm saying that it's different. It's a different kind of animal, especially when you are posting news items. There are a lot of news sites like Reuters and others, you know, even like CNN, 
AOL that have guidelines for reusing their news items. It's simply, uh, usually just simply an acknowledgement of where you got that. So it acknowledges that came from AOL or CNN or whatever. That's usually going to be the case. You do add another little twist when you talk about then charging a membership fee because fair use really has to do with just reposting news items or information for the purpose of education. So as you mentioned, you know, you know, as a teacher, you can do that. You can, there's a couple things that you can do. One is you can have a disclaimer that says, you know, this site contains copyrighted material and we haven't always carefully contacted the original presenter of that information. I mean, you could, you can just do a little search and you can come up with kind of a disclaimer that says clearly what you're doing. Now, for one thing, if you have a site and it does nothing but just repost other people's material, I don't think the site really has value. I think you're going to have to take what's there and, you know, jazz it up some, you know, add your content to it before it really has any value anyway. Otherwise, I think you're going to have trouble having a, a paid membership site. So I think you'll add content that is your own, that's unique to you to make it valuable. Now, what this really is uh, coming down to, well, let me give you one other tip here. I would encourage you not to have other even news reports in their entirety. Take a little snippet, and then I would recommend that you summarize in your own words what they're seeing in the news, or you use a quotation from a news site. You discuss it. You expand on that and thus make it your own. Now, to really get the fair use, you know, what, what we're talking about here, it comes from the Copyright Act of 1976. Now, it, it's kind of strange in itself that we have the Copyright Act of 1976. So we have, what, you know, 35, 35 years ago. It seems with all the change in the way that we get information, there would be an update of that. But it's Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976 which reads as follows, notwithstanding the provisions of sections 106 and 106A, the fair use of copyrighted work, including the reproduction in copies or phono records or by other, any other means specified by that section for purposes such as, now this is how you can use copyrighted news material, for criticism, comment, news reporting, or teaching. That is not an infringement of copyright. So that is the fair use. Yes, you can use it for criticism, comment, news reporting, or teaching. But when you talk about packaging that, then in a way, even if it's on a website where you're going to charge a membership fee, that pretty much steps over the line. So you're going to be better off to use the guidelines like, like we use in writing, where if you use a quotation, you acknowledge who said that. If you use a paragraph, then you get permission from that organization to use that. So you do open up kind of a can of worms there when you add that it's going to be a paid for membership site. Now, even like on the podcast, you know, I do, I take a lot of liberties in the podcast where I read quotes from other people. I use music bumps and so on, copyrighted music. Uh, but an, an easy defense is that there's no cost for the podcast. 
you know, there's no advertising on here. It's not a revenue generation. It's just passing out of information. So in that sense, it really is just used for teaching and information purposes. Now, obviously, I use the podcast to then alert people to other things that we're doing at 48 days, workshops, live events we've got coming up, products that we have. So there's a pretty direct tie-in to a for-profit business, but I would be, it would be easy for me to make a case the podcast itself stands alone as a training and information use. Whereas what you're talking about is you want to go directly to a paid-for membership site. Now, let, let me add another question here. Because this is kind of a related issue. This comes from Nina from Charleston, South Carolina. Anita says, I'm putting together a collection of tried and true recipes from various sources. What are the legalities about creating this using other people's recipes? I'll use, I'll be using this as part of my wellness program. Most likely create an ebook, possibly a spiral bound notebook. Thanks, Nina. This is a little bit different. Because recipes are not really copyrighted material. Now, I know that there's a lot of confusion about this. And people think, well, there's that famous recipe that was, you know, chocolate chip recipe from the Ritz-Carlton that somebody paid $250,000 for or something. There's all kinds of urban legends out there. But recipes in and of themselves really are not copyrighted. And frankly, in and of themselves, really don't have a lot of monetary value. Anyway, but copyright law does not protect recipes that are merely listings of ingredients. So if you put together, you know, chocolate chips and pineapple and coconut and walnuts and pecans, you list and man, I mean, you've got a a cookie that people just crawl over themselves to get to. You may think, well, I don't want anybody else to know about my recipe. You know, that's a secret list of ingredients. Well, you can protect it if you want to. And certainly, you know, Coca-Cola compound is, they protect that. They don't want anybody else to know that. But it's not really protected in terms of copyright law as a list of ingredients. So copyright protection, however, this is where it gets tricky when it relates to a recipe. The ingredients usually are just a list of ingredients to work with. So if you say, you know, take a cup of tea and put a slice of lemon in there, that's going to be common ingredients that are found in thousands of other recipes and other cookbooks. However, there is a term called literary expression that is protected with copyright law. So if you start to describe how to put these things together, you know, how much time to seep the tea and how to add the lemon just right, and you write three paragraphs about how you have done that that creates a tea that really is special, your literary expression is copyrighted. Nobody can take that in its entirety, word for word, and use it somewhere else. So that brings us back around to Nina's question. How can she use recipes from other people? And what are the legalities? You can use recipes. You can use recipes that you find anywhere. As long as you don't use somebody else's literary expression. So as long as you don't use somebody else's, you know, Rosemary's description of why this is the best Italian lasagna that you'll ever taste and how she shared it with her family over the years. That you can't use. But the list of ingredients you can use. But that brings us back to then a catch-22 in this somewhat circular kind of argument. Will those recipes 
as standalone list of ingredients have any value. And frankly, I don't think they have much value. I mean, Joanne, my wife, if she is struggling, now she has, I mean, she's a wonderful cook and she has an extensive cookbook library. And I would venture to say she probably hasn't pulled a cookbook off the shelf, you know, in the last three years. Now, I'm I'm probably exaggerating. She probably has. But I know that like just recently, we wanted to have a bunch of people over and she wanted to do a real authentic down south Louisiana shrimp boil. Well, she didn't spend half an hour pulling her cookbooks off. She just, boom, we've got a little notebook computer in the kitchen. She pulled it up, Googled that. She instantly had, you know, three, four different great recipes with full descriptions about how to do a shrimp boil. That's how she does it. Now, she, I can't imagine her hitting a site where she'd have to pay 50 cents to get a recipe. There's just too much that's available there. So I think it's challenging to put together a bunch of recipes in any format at this point and charge for that. Now, prove me wrong on that. Let me know that you had a $100,000 idea, you know, success. I love to hear those stories, but I think it's a very difficult arena to go into to expect to make money. All right. Gene says, how do you stay motivated if you don't have a support system? I am pursuing my passion, but I have no one I can talk to about struggles or successes. I am surrounded by non-starters whose contribution is a constant chorus of negativity. I'm a person of faith and talk to God a lot, but sometimes I would like human interaction. (laughs) Reminds me of one time when uh, Jared, one of our children, was very small. He was probably four or five and it was a very stormy night and he had come out of his room multiple times and we put him back in his bedroom and I finally said you know well Jared you can you stay in here you know be confident that you know Jesus is with you here and he says daddy I want somebody I can touch it was one of those precious kid moments and so Gene is saying and as much as she's a person of faith she wants somebody to touch somebody she can talk to in real life terms about what she's trying to do. And I think you're right on track. I think that you need to have a support system. And if you don't have one, find one. And if the people that you're around are non-starters, whose contribution is a constant chorus of negativity, I mean, what a great poetic statement there. I'm surrounded by non-starters whose contribution is a constant chorus of negativity. Find people who are going the same direction you are. I mean, you've got to do that. And it is hard to stay motivated if everybody around is negative. That's why a lot of times when people are making plans to leave a traditional job and start a business of their own, they don't get encouragement by their coworkers who are saying, oh man, go for it. That's really cool. No, they're saying, what? Are you nuts? You're leaving your severance package that you would get if the company fired you instead of you walking away, you're leaving these benefits, you're leaving your 401k contributions, a vested retirement plan. Are you crazy? And then, you know, the person leaves and the next year they make $300,000 and everybody's saying, Oh, you're just so lucky. You just get all the breaks. Well, you got to find people who are going the same direction that you are. I mean, I talk a lot about my um, Wednesday morning mastermind group a group that Dave and I, Dave Ramsey and I started years ago, about 10 years ago now, but simply invited some other guys to join us in that. It's a closed group, small group, but it's one of the highlights of my week. And it's just this morning, one of the guys in there is in a real crisis situation in the business that he owns. It's a very big business 
and a crisis situation where he needs to make some decisions. We spent the whole morning talking about that, coming up with some strategies that he can use in the next two days that are going to make, they're going to be a, a, a very big swing in which direction this business goes. So you find people like that. And again, I, I don't, this is not a magic process of finding them, but recognize people who are big thinkers, who are dreamers, who are acting on those things, who have already achieved success. If you see somebody who's already performing at a level which you want to perform, connect with that person, take him to lunch, you know, start meeting regularly, but make sure that you are doing that. Now, if it comes right down to it, you're having trouble, you live in the middle of Iowa and there's nobody within 200 miles or whatever, get the books that will do the same thing for you. You can find mentors, people that encourage you in the form of books, people who have accomplished great things, have already achieved their dreams. You can draw support, encouragement, and strength from those as well. Tina from Oregon says, I have a phrase, slogan, I'm considering putting on t-shirts, mugs, hats, etc., but know the, don't know the first thing about doing this. I assume the first thing would be registering the phrase, but I'm unsure under which category this would fall. Trademark, copyright, patent, how do I do that, and what are the remaining steps that lead to actually selling the items? Well, let me deal with the, your first question. So if you have a phrase like, just do it, or you're fired, or whatever the phrase is, uh, you deserve a break today. The issue is one of trademark. That's not copyright or patent, it's trademark. But trademark then has to do with as much a look as words, letters combined to make words. So, Golly, you deserve a break today. All right. If that's a trademark phrase, and that could be a trademark phrase from McDonald's. However, that does not mean that I can't use that phrase when I'm talking to somebody or when I'm writing or crafting a speech. You deserve a break today. It's too common. I mean, we can't protect and claim you can't, you know, patent sunshine. Everybody has exposure to it. What the, the phrase you're fired, Donald Trump did trademark that phrase because it's so descriptive of what, you know, he has made famous on the show and in real life, I'm sure you're fired. So you can look at trademarking the phrase, but really that doesn't give you a whole lot of protection anyway. My encouragement is don't waste your time trying to trademark it. Now you can't, I mean, life is good. I mean, that's a, that's a good example. Let me back up a minute, qualify what I'm saying. Life is good. Those guys, those couple brothers did trademark that. So at every time you see that on a mug or hat or t-shirt, it's got the little TM there. Actually, it's going to have the R, which is a distinction. You can put a TM next to your phrase now, which means that you thought of it. You don't know of anybody else that's using that. And so you're claiming rights to that. That's a little TM in a circle. You can pull that down in the insert section on Microsoft Word or whatever word processor you're using. Put it in everything that you do. When you actually do trademark that, and you can trademark it through the USPTO, USPTO.gov. That's the United States Trademark and Patent Office. You can access it online and you can do your trademark right there. You can trademark the phrase 
And when you get the official notification that it's trademarked, then you put an R. It's the R in the little circle that tells everybody this is a registered trademark. So you can do that. It'll cost you about, I think it's about $375 to do that. So if you want to do that, you can do that. But the real power is just simply selling merchandise. I mean, even with the guys, you know, life is good. I mean, I don't think it hurt their business any if they never trademarked that phrase. They just know how to sell a lot of hats, mugs, t-shirts, products like that, and you can do the same. I would encourage you to test what you're doing before you just run out and assume the slogan you've got is just killer. Everybody's going to love it. And so you, in secret, without anybody knowing about it, you get 10,000 t-shirts pressed with that slogan on it. I think that is a recipe for a major disaster financially. I think you ought to test it. And you can go to sites like Zazzle.com or Cafe Press or Threadless, and you can put your slogan, do a neat little design. You have a really cool font that kind of makes it stand out. And you put that slogan on a t-shirt, you'll see instantly if people think that's really cool, if they're going to buy that. If they do buy that, you're going to get a share of the profits from shirt number one without ever having invested a penny in buying shirts, having shirts printed with that. Then if it is a real success, then you can start manufacturing those yourself where you'll increase your margin. So if a shirt sells for $15 on Threadless, you may get $2. If you find that it's really a big hit and you start manufacturing them themselves, or yourself, you may find that you can then increase your margin to $12 a shirt instead of two. I mean, that's too cool. That's totally cool. Test it. I do a lot of things where I run it up the flagpole to see if people really like it first. The 48 low cost business ideas. It's a free PDF at this point, still on 48days.net. 48 low cost business ideas. I did that just as kind of a fluke. I was on a radio interview and I mentioned that I needed to do that because I have so many people ask about that. So I did. I put together 48 low-cost business ideas. We put it together as a PDF, put it up there. Well, my webmaster tells me that over 90,000 people have downloaded that. Well, guess what that tells me? That tells me that that really hit a nerve with people. People want that. Now we're going to refine it. I mean, I'm not in any big hurry to pull it down. I don't care. People can continue to download it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refine it, clean it up a little bit, and make it available as a product that people can purchase either electronically as a PDF or as a physical product. We'll make it a little spiral bound thing and they can buy it for probably 17 bucks. We do a lot of things at 17 bucks and then we can run specials where we do it for 10. But the fact that I already tried it out and people really liked it, let me know that that will be a profitable product rather than risking something where we run, do a big run in a product only to find out, nah, it didn't really hit a chord with people. Well, Ling from um, Ontario says, I realize now that I'm passionate in creating things that are beautiful and learning specifically in the area of jewelry. I sell some online and I'm and baking. I'm taking classes. Would I one day be able to make as much doing this as what I'm getting now as a software engineer? Can I combine the two areas how thanks and advice for your insight. Well, you like to make jewelry and bake things. Okay, now you're talking about two things that are very time and labor intensive. You're talking about things that would create linear income 
not residual. It's going to be difficult to bake enough things to duplicate the money that you're likely making as a software engineer. Now, can it be done? Yes. If you decide that you're going to do three different kinds of brownies and two other pastries and lemon chiffon pie, those are going to be your specialties and you get contracts with some local grocery stores and restaurants, which you can do, even if they're franchise restaurants and brand name grocery stores, they a lot of times deal with local merchants for baked goods. You can do that. If you get enough leverage there and you're going to next year, you know, sell $300,000 worth of things with a 30% margin and you make net $100,000. Yeah, you can do that. But I think it's going to be pretty tough. You need to look for ways that you can take your expertise and knowledge in those areas and turn it into residual income. Um, hang with me a little bit here. I know I've got another question coming up. I'll talk a little bit more about how to turn your expertise into residual income rather than just being stuck with the linear. Frank says, Dan, I'm a longtime listener in Albuquerque. You've inspired me to leave my government engineering job three years ago to pursue my business full time. So far, so good. Well, glad to glad to hear that. Frank. I have a business that sells a variety of items. We sell imprinted t-shirts, hats, mugs, etc. to schools and teams here locally. I'm thinking about changing the name from Absolute Quality Apparel to AMIE Graphics, but I'm not sure if I should. Uh, the reason for the change would be to shorten the name as well as try to indicate what we do in the name. Do you think it's better to have one name, for example, AIME graphics and one website or create several DBAs such as AMIE t-shirts, AIME embroidery, AIME promotional products and have several websites. We could also keep the name Absolute Quality Apparel and create AIME graphics. Wow. A lot of possibilities. Let me give you the short take on this. Yeah, I think you're wise to shorten the name. Absolute quality apparel are three extremely generic terms. If you Google those, you're going to get 50 million sites that use those terms. Plus, it's pretty long. And your, your desire to shorten it, I think, is, is well thought out. So if you go to AIME graphics, I mean, it makes kind of a neat acronym, you know, AIM graphics. Yeah, I think that's cool. And I think it's rational to do that. I don't think in a business like that, that it makes sense to have multiple websites for individual products. I mean, you want the synergy of having a variety of things anyway. So you, you want it set up so that purchases in one area will fuel purchases in another. I mean, that's the way I have 48 days set up. We have seven different areas, distinct business divisions, but they're all under one umbrella and activity in any one fuels activity in another. So if I write, it fuels opportunities for me to speak. If I speak, it fuels opportunities to sell product. You know, if, it, if I sell product, it fuels uh, inquiries about coming to live events. I mean, they, they all help each other. So I would structure your business in that way and just have one primary website rather than lots of them. Robert says, I'm an army reservist and also in the process of starting a molding and woodworking company, MertzWoodcraft.com. I'm worried about what will happen to the business if I'm mobilized for six months to a year. What steps can I take to ensure my business continues operating in my absence, considering the only employees are myself and my wife? Well, making molding and wood products, again, is a business that's very labor intensive. 
it's difficult to really get leverage there. Uh, You do the work and get paid one time. You have linear income, so you do it and get paid one time. You don't really have residual income. And actually, when you describe this as a business, if we want to get real technical, you are self-employed, but you may not actually have a business. Having a business implies that it continues to generate income even if you're not there. So that may sound picky, but it'll help you kind of frame what you've got. So you've created a job for yourself, and I commend you on doing that. It looks cool. You've got some really uh, detailed kind of things that you're doing on there. But if you really want to have a business, then it does have to have a way to continue, even if you're not there. In your case, there are a couple ways that you have the potential to do that. One is to hire a couple employees. Now, that brings on a whole new set of challenges, I realize. But I mean, obviously, that's what a lot of people in your kind of business have done. They brought on on employees who know how to turn out the work. So the work does continue when you're not there. The other thing is to somehow take your intellectual expertise, what you know about woodworking and making moldings, and turn that into information that has a life of its own. So if you have an ebook or a book or a website that people pay to get information from, so that that has a potential to continue even if you're not physically there. Now, I look for things that produce residual income all the time. That's really all that I'm interested in. What is it that I can set up as a system so that once it's set up, it will continue? I mean, we did a joint venture with a company last year and we put together the 48 Days Job Coach. Now, that Job Coach is a software-driven program where somebody can sign on at 2 a.m. in the morning and they can pay for it get a unique access code, log in and start creating their own resume, come up with their own unique interviewing questions, how to target companies, go through that whole process. It's much like my coaching, but now it's put together as a software program so people can go through, you know, 85% of what I would help them do personally, but doing it in an automated program. And thus it really is part of a business rather than just something that I did as an individual coach. That's what you're going to have to do if you're going to be able to turn this business into something that will continue if you happen to be deployed. Well, let me kind of move. I've got just a a couple here that I want to add that are just kind of uh, attaboys and compliments, and I appreciate those. We get lots of them. I don't share a lot of them, but I want to share just a couple here because they bring out a couple other good points as well. And we'll kind of roll into the conclusion with this today. Dana from Phoenix says, This time last year, I started listening to your podcast and also following Dave Ramsey's financial plan. Here I am today. Now get this. This is one year later. Here I am today, paid off all my consumer debt, $70,000 worth. And I just received a call from a top design firm to work for an outrageous amount of money. God bless all you're doing. I couldn't be happier. I love my life. Thank you. Well, thanks for taking the time to shoot that note in, Dave. And as a matter of fact, I I shot that over to uh, Dave Ramsey's team, and they're going to put it on their um, list of email uh, notes to be read in today's broadcast. So you're getting a little extra coverage there. But Dave and I continue to appreciate hearing those kind of notes without question. Another note comes from Ted. Ted says, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for some recent great changes in my life. I've listened to your podcast for several years and I've always admired your Eagles group. 
Now, that's the group that I talk about that the guys that meet on Wednesday morning. This past December, while setting my goals for the year, I decided to try my own. One of the first guys I thought to talk to was a great guy I met in the 48days.net member community. Um, Funny story, but back in the fall, we got to chatting about self-publishing and realized we live 10 miles from each other. What are the odds of that? He was excited about the idea, and soon we were personalizing the charter document that you have online. Three months later, we have five more guys involved who are all just as eager and committed to helping each other be all we can be. It's better than I had even hoped. Thanks for the resources, the social networking site, and the great example you provide. I just thought you'd like to hear about some of the good stuff you've helped get started in Newman, Georgia. You're the best. Thanks, Ted. Well, thanks for your note, Ted. Yeah, I I put a little note. Now, I'm going to be developing the material. One of my on-the-list projects to get completed this year is a manifesto that will develop more thoroughly how to start your own mastermind group. But I do have the little short guidelines that Dave Ramsey and I put together 10 years ago. That's available under the 48 days worksheets. You can access that easily on any of our sites, 48 days worksheets. It's in there, the guidelines for that little group. And you're welcome to that and reproduce it and modify it to make it your own. That's what I encourage people to do. I spoke last Friday morning at a group called CEO Fellowship at Brentwood Baptist Church here near where I live and had a a table of about seven young guys who sat right up in front and they shared that they have started their own mastermind group. And it was really cool to hear them talk about the excitement that they have and getting the same benefits at a very much younger age than what I had access to a group like that. And I'm delighted to, to hear about that. That was headed up by Golly, Travis, Justin, Joel, and some others. And it's funny, the, the very next day, I attended PodCamp, a convention downtown that Cliff Ravenscraft, my podcast guy and our 48 Days podcast expert, invited me to to speak on a panel with him down there. I went down there and ran into all those same young guys again who happened to be a very tech savvy, and they were doing a live web stream right then that uh, they interviewed me on and uh, it was neat running into them again the very next day but some guys that are obviously out there doing what they love and making a difference well one more rose from greenville south carolina love your podcast love your newsletter share your info with everyone my husband is finally coming around but he asked how many people are living the life they want doing what they love does dan miller have a percentage tons of people are on 48days.net starting businesses do you have number of successes or percent cured. (laughs) Um, What percentage of people have been cured? Well, you know, I wish there were, well, I don't even, I I shouldn't even say that. I was going to say, I wish there were a way to quantify, you know, success when it comes to people who have found their passion or doing what they love doing. I don't think it's even necessary to try to quantify that. It would be artificial to try to say, well, you know, gee, 48% of the people, you know, have really figured it out or 48% of the people that I've worked with or have somehow had the opportunity to speak to, you know, or have read my books and figured it out. We don't have 
figures like that. Now, we receive thousands and thousands of testimonials, and I never get tired of, of receiving those from people who say, oh my gosh, you know, I did figure it out. I am doing the work that I love. You know, thank you for your encouragement that I could do it. And a lot of what I provide is simply that. It's encouragement. This is not a magic process. This is not a, a logical process. One plus one equals two, and now you've got it. It's an ongoing process as well. It's an ongoing journey. I met with a gentleman yesterday that I met with about, well, nine years ago, I think we calculated. And he's at another transition point. So he's having to go back and rethink again the processes we went through nine years ago to figure out at this transition, how does he continue moving in that direction? Having had a very successful stint, but now just lost a job. Well, that can happen even after you found work that you love. I mean, circumstances come up that require that you once again, pull out those principles for finding or creating work that you love. So it's an ongoing process. I don't know how to quantify it. I know there's a whole lot of people figuring it out. Certainly by virtue of what I do, I probably hear from those people more than I do the ones who don't figure it out. Now, it, once in a while, I mean, I hear from people too who say, gee, Dan, I read your book. It's a bunch of garbage. I tried everything in there. My life still sucks. Well, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to cure that. I mean, all I can do is simply saying, this is what's worked for me. This is what's worked for a whole lot of other people. Why don't you try it? I think your life is going to be better as a result. I mean, that's the direction that I go with people. I hope that it has provided encouragement for people to go in that direction. Well, if you're listening to this, you know, I'm pretty confident if you're listening to this, you hung around this long, that you are on the path. You have either already figured it out or you are well on the path to figuring it out, that you're committed to the process of finding or creating work that you love. I commend you. I'm delighted to be on the same path with you. It's an exciting journey. Thanks for being part of the 48 Days family. Have a great week doing what you love.